Den Talks podcast is powered by denanywhere.com, your one-stop shop for self-growth. Go there for workshops, classes, live classes, on-demand classes, certifications, retreats, whatever it is you are looking for, we have it. Come join us. And now for only $49.99 a month, you have unlimited access to all classes live and the entire on-demand schedule. So you can make it work for you. So if you are looking for a chance to deepen your practice, show up every day, or even just a couple times a week, this is the membership for you. We cannot wait to see you in class. Go to denanywhere.com and sign up. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal. I am your host and the founder of Den Meditation. Today's conversation is about kindness and heart practices. And I have Amanda Gilbert on, longtime Den teacher, beautiful mindfulness instructor and teacher and practitioner. And she's coming out with this book, Kindness Now. And it is a beautiful book. And we talk about this today, all about the importance of heart practices and how there's four different main practices. And she goes through all of them in her book and she walks you through 28 days of doing these practices. It's a beautiful book that I recommend you all getting, but more important with this conversation, we're talking about how, especially right now, it's such a beautiful time for this book to aid you in moving out of the mind and allowing the mind and the heart to really work together so that you can have compassion for yourself and for others and what's happening on this earth at this time. So it's a lovely conversation. Amanda is always lovely. So it was so great to have her here. It's like talking to an old friend and I hope you enjoy it. And I hope you get something out of it. Oh, good. You got the arc. Okay. I did. It's so good. I know. I'm so impressed. So did you write this over the pandemic or were you writing it before? Tell me what the timeline was. I love that you just immediately asked that because <laughs> I, I, because yeah, the truth is, is that I wrote it. I started to seriously write the manuscript one week before we all went into quarantine in the US. And so I was writing Kindness Now for five months straight through the middle of 2020. And, you know, the, the section on loving kindness was actually when we were first going into lockdown and just realizing what, you know, what the, the coronavirus meant and what it was. And then as I got into the teachings on compassion, it's when George Floyd's murder happened. And so I was holding that experience as I was writing and really channeling, you know, just that moment in time and the aftermath, of course, those weeks of just all of our social unrest during the teachings on compassion. And then I still have to kind of look at, you know, look back at my calendar and my writing last year. But I think if I remember right, when I got to the teachings on appreciative joy, is when they, you know, filed the formal charges, you oh, know, and wow. there was that, yeah, and there was like that moment of, you know, not of, of joy, but like that hard earned joy from just those weeks and couple months of uncertainty and unrest. And then equanimity, it was just so wild. Um, and then equanimity came towards the end of the year, like late summer, early fall. And we were just kind of like in the steadiness of that, of at least the pandemic, you know, we kind of understood what it was. We were starting to hear about the vaccines coming at some point, you know, in the near future. And so it was just, I'm getting chills right now. It was just absolutely a wild experience to be writing this and just seeing how it mapped on to 2020. That is so crazy how 
the arc because it's not like, I mean, well, I guess you're always relearning stuff as you're doing yeah. it, but yeah. obviously you were coming at this from a place of a teacher. So it's like, it's not, it, so it's so interesting that weirdly what you were teaching and then writing to teach and help others understand was being completely mimicked in what was going on. Did you feel like you were learning a whole nother level of it that, you know, by going through it that way? What I came to find was that I had a deeper understanding of the heart practices of the practices and the um, principles of the book. I understood the absolute necessity of compassion and aligning ourselves with a inner compassionate stance and how these practices can be such refuge and such a deep resource during times of, of turmoil, times of uncertainty, times of like deep reckoning and deep inner personal question, question, questioning, but then also more collective inquiry and, and reckoning and questioning as well. So um, I, if anything, I just found a, a deeper level of like understanding around the practices and that definitely got channeled like through the book. That's interesting. And yeah, were there any times you just kind of had to take a moment and be like, wow, like, did you ever approach any of these sections? So just so people know, and you did such a beautiful job, not even realizing you were doing it. So this, this book is based on the heart practices and they're four. And what I love how this book is structured is how you teach what the four are, but then ultimately what it really is. And I like how you say, you're like, you can just get to it if you want. It's a 28 day practice and it's one week in each practice. And every day there's a different version of a meditation, which I love because that's what people don't realize is you can do one practice in so many different ways. And mm. so I think I, I love how each practice was, you know, divided into a week. And so there's seven meditations, basically seven different practices with kind of more description and reflection and like journal entries. So ultimately, if you complete this book and do it, it's a deep exploration into yourself as the heart, as your vehicle, like really getting to go back into this home of your heart, which is not an easy place to just walk into, which we'll talk more about that. But, um, so what I love that you did so eloquently right on top, probably not even realizing it, is you told us, we'll hear the four practices. Um, so were there any moments for you as you were going through these practices that you actually had to pause and stop and kind of rethink the way you were planning on approaching it because of everything going on for you? In a sense, I, you know, I was in such a deep writing schedule during the five months that I... And it, the practice really became, my day-to-day -day practice became just creating the right conditions and the right container for the words and the, and the teachings just to flow through me. And so if anything, the pausing was actually part of like the daily writing process and daily write, writing practice for me. I would write towards the beginning of the day. And then once I wrote as much as I could or wrote that section I was really intending to get into an, an approach that day, then I would pause, you know, and almost like have a mini break, walk outside, have some lunch, et cetera. Then the end of my day, the afternoon would be outlining more specifically the next day's teachings or the next day's practice or the next day's writing. Mm. And so there's almost like this constant like checking in in real time during during the writing process. 
And so there's not one specific moment that really, you know, that really comes to mind. It was just the experience of writing the full book. It was so present time and, um, it just given the moment in time it was written, it was a reflection of just what of my own processing of 2020 and just everything that we were collectively also going through. Interesting. Yeah. Did you, um, what practices do you feel like from just writing? And it sounds like you kind of put yourself like, you're like, I'm going to really, like you said, create this space, create this temple. What practices do you feel like you've taken from the process of writing your book that now you incorporate into your day-to-day life? I have deeply leaned on self-kindness and self-compassion as like a moment-to-moment practice during 2020, during the writing process. And just moving forward, I came to really love self-compassion and self-kindness in particular, because no matter what it is that I would encounter throughout my days. It could be something like, you know, just maybe not sending an email correctly in the tone that I wanted to, or just being a little quick with some of my communications or just encountering any like little moment of like stress or, or suffering or anything. I would immediately, you know, fall into the self-compassion practices that I really got to know more intimately through the writing process of the book. Just pausing, being able to pause and place your hand on your heart in the midst of anything, waiting in line somewhere, again, just like receiving a communication or realizing like, oh man, I didn't really say what I intended to say in the exact perfect way or the exact like meant way. Um, just like pausing and placing a hand on the heart and just sending some sentiments of compassion. Like, it's okay, dear one, you know, you are doing the best that you can. You've got this. I see you. I hear you. May you meet yourself and, and others with total understanding, total kindness, total spaciousness, a lot of patience, a lot of forgiveness. We're all in this human moment, this human condition together. And dropping into just like in the moment compassion practice and kindness or, or metta practice, loving, loving kindness practice has been the way I've just been moving through the world, especially since so systematically approaching the practices through the writing of kindness now. How, talk to me a little bit about why we get so far removed, like why does this world, I mean, I know we need it, but like if you were going to talk about why in this world we need these heart practices so badly, why are we so removed from the one thing that's actually truly our home? What I love about the timing of this book, even taking it outside of 2020, is that I feel like, you know, I've been in the meditation field personally, professionally for over a decade. And it's been wonderful to see mindfulness really, really have its time in the spotlight. We've spent decades from the empirical research view, conducting clinical research on mindfulness, the practice of training our minds to learn what it means to stay in the present moment, to really live our lives from the present moment. It's why mindfulness has taken off in the way that it has. It's why, you know, most people that I talk to, even non-daily meditators, you know, they have 
Headspace or Calm or 10% Happier or some meditation apps on app on their phones. You know, they are, they're aware of it. We are collectively and globally aware of mindfulness and meditation. And however, the last few years and just even marrying it on, you know, what we are going through um, more collective, collectively in a society-wide way, I have seen in my own, in like my own classes at the den or just within my own classes at uh, USC or working one-on-one with students is that what we are really in a sense being called to bring into our own practice and start to work with are the heart practices of mindfulness meditation. We, I've been seeing just the deep need to learn how to approach what it is we become aware of with kindness instead of condemnation, with compassion instead of judgment, with understanding versus like wishing our, our thoughts away or wishing these uncomfortable feelings that we may encounter meditation away. And so in a sense, like as, as modern people, we are so used to like living from the mind. And what I love about the heart teachings at this point in time is that they, you know, they really make us understand that let's not like demonize that, you know, let's not judge ourselves for, for living from the mind so much, especially over these past many, many uh, decades and centuries. But the current call is to really bring the mind back to its original place, which is always being in unification or in connection with the heart. And the heart practices, the four practices of uh, the Brahma Viharas or the four practices of mindfulness meditation are systematic ways to start to bring us back to that original heart state, like you were mentioning, Tal. And in a sense, once we understand that the invitation of the moment is to step into a more heart a more heart-based place of living and being. Um, you know, I think we start to also see what is obscuring or, or covering up our innate open-heartedness. We are born into this world with an open mind and an open heart. And then as we grow up, we start to identify with the mind. We start to, you know, we start to take on identity locations. We take on the cultural conditioning around us. And all of that tends to obscure our open-heartedness and our open-mindedness as well. So the heart practices are just really, you know, what I love about them is that they are a beautiful blend of mindfulness and, and the heart. We need to know, we still need to, to rely on mindfulness as we're practicing loving kindness or compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity, because we need to know where to apply our kindness and our compassion to. So, so mindfulness and the heart practices, especially from a traditional view, they're always approached as one practice. And so that's why I'm deeply excited about the timing of this book. It's almost like, yes, let's step into the heart. Let's reclaim our innate open-heartedness and the Brahma Viharas or the heart qualities of mindfulness meditation, they are meant to show us how. Talk, it's, it's interesting because you said a couple of things there. You did say like, 
using your awareness and meeting it with kindness because it's so true. It's like awareness is so important. And we talk about that all the time. Like once you have awareness, you can start peeling stuff away. You can start understanding the patterning. You can start, you know, understanding how to bring patience there. But it's it's so interesting that part of the choice is how do you meet your awareness, which I think you said, which mm. I find fascinating because you can be aware of something, but if you're beating yourself up over it, then how much effect does that awareness have? Completely. And I actually see this quite a bit with um, a lot of just really like, you know, almost like type A personalities who I work with in the meditation space and in the meditation classroom is that we can almost become too hyper aware of ourselves. Right. <laughs> I know like that I'm actually, like, yeah. yeah, you're like, yeah, me too. Um, and that was the case for me. That was my truth for several, several years. I became so just like almost like hyper aware, but also enamored with like this self-awareness, this self-inquiry, uncovering what was up and just um, understanding my habits of mind and all the emotional, you know, patterns that were always at play. And it wasn't until I was introduced to loving kindness practice for the first time, and then subsequently just uh, the, the practices of compassion and the heart. It's really when I felt that my own inner world started to balance out a little bit more. And then my meditation practice also started to balance out a little bit more because to exactly what you were just saying, if we don't, you know, meet what's here with an element of like understanding, spaciousness, compassion, almost like not like at a level of acceptance and non-judgment, then we will like, in a sense, just become really like hyper aware. And that can tip us into a certain direction a little too far, I found. That it's so, it's so true. It's because it, it's interesting. You're saying you had a practice for a while before mm. you found the heart practices. So you're, you're already shifting, but you found yourself going, it sounds like substantially deeper um, into yourself when you started the heart practices. Truly, it, you know, and I write about this in the book, um, the story of the first time I actually encountered loving kindness meditation and it was by showing up to a regular weekly sitting mindfulness group up in the Bay Area of California in Marin County. And I was really in the uh, train of developing a, a consistent meditation practice at the time. And my practice had really moved from Vedic meditation to more mindfulness meditation. And, and then I was starting to... Um, study and read more about like Buddhist view, Buddhist principles, and even the, the, the Dharma teachings of quote unquote mindfulness meditation. And so I was suggested to go to a weekly sitting group. And so I went there and in the first like arrival sit during the first period of sitting towards the end of the meditation, which was all a mindfulness meditation, predominantly at the beginning, we settled in as a group and a community into the body we, of course, um, placed our attention upon the breath and did a period of breath focus practice. But then towards the end of that sitting, the uh, leader, the teacher who was Jack Cornfield, and I, you know, at this time, I actually had no, I, like, I didn't really know uh, more was. broadly who Jack was, <laughs> but I was in his, his Monday night weekly sitting group. 
And towards the end, he started to guide us in loving kindness. And as these words, so just to even pause for a moment and give like more specific view on how we practice loving kindness is we, one of the ways we practice loving kindness meditation or metta is by repeating phrases and words silently in the mind that really hold the intention and the aspiration of the qualities of the heart. So in loving kindness, we repeat phrases like, may I be happy today? May I feel healthy and strong? May I meet each moment with kindness and compassion today? May my life unfold with with ease. When I was hearing these phrases for the first time in this, in this sit with Jack, I just remember the words just starting to drop into my body, drop into my heart. And it was the, 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 most, um, the most tender moment in my meditation practice I had had so far. It was almost like I was given additional tools to be able to meet my inner world with a lot more a lot more growth, a lot more insight, a lot more transformation. I could feel the softening effects and the transformational effects almost immediately, even during that first sit of loving kindness that I ever experienced. And meanwhile, I mean, even during the sit, I was having like this, this meta, this meta awareness experience too, of like, this is a little odd to be like, you know, sitting here in my meditation practice saying, may I be happy? I was like, wow, like, you know, I hadn't practiced that before. And then to also realize like, well, actually more deeply, I really do want to be happy. Mm. And so the more that I repeat this phrase of intention, this phrase of benevolence, this phrase of well-being silently in the mind, the more I'm like accepting this more deeply in my, my heart space and my heart field and in my own body so this, you know, in a way we, again, it's another beautiful um, example of how the heart practices utilize both mindfulness and, and the heart. We repeat the phrases in the mind they, and they hold that intention, but they really bring the qualities, the aspirations of the heart and the intention of the mind together. Do you feel like one of the reasons that re you said you came from a Vedic practice, which mm -hmm. is mantra based and repetition. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's something of that which resonates with you? So even though it's not one word, or it's not, it's still like phrases and there's a rhythm and you're kind of tapping into frequency. Do you feel like there's something about that, that for you resonates? Yes. I, I love this question because I, you know, I loved mantra meditation and Vedic meditation. It was my daily practice for just years and years and years. And I found that I was really able to concentrate on the repetition of the mantras in the mind. And I loved that feeling of concentration in my practice. And so with repeating meta phrases, meta mantras, loving kindness phrases, when you engage with the heart practices, I find that there is that overlap, that similarity, that even... Uh, uh, students who I work with, uh, especially at the university level, it was, it's always been really amazing to see over the course of a semester, we're starting with mindfulness practice, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of mind, mindfulness of emotions. Then towards the end of the semester, we actually start to 
um, study and work with the heart practices with loving kindness and compassion. And some of the students who, um, in a sense, like identify as like having a bit of struggle with being able to focus upon the breath or focus during a body scan, once they start meeting and, and learning the phrases of loving kindness and start wishing themselves the phrases of loving kindness in like a repetitive way, I hear over and over and over again, like, oh, Amanda, you know, this is my practice. <laughs> I feel like I'm really meditating for the first time. And so again, there's just something like uh, from a from a broad view, you know, from even outside of the the you know the book right now and kindness now, I just I'm so delighted in a sense to see that as a meditate as a meditation field or just as modern human beings more broadly, I feel like the kindness and compassion these practices are just like they're just what we are needing in this moment. And they're also the practices that are really, really clicking and providing like mm. a lot of insight and growth. So I want to talk about something I feel like people do not take enough advantage of, our certifications. A lot of people don't realize we have as many certifications as we do. Here's a beauty. You can now do it no matter where you live in the world or what your time zone is. There is something for you. And again, certifications are a brilliant way if you're looking to change your career, if you're interested in something you just want to know more, or frankly, if you kind of are craving to go on a deeper journey with yourself. Certifications are a brilliant way to do that. And we cover everything from Reiki's all the way up to master level, intuitive healing trainings if you're really looking to hone that psychic ability or become an energetic healer, um, teacher training, which is an intense, incredible program for self-exploration, or if you want to become a teacher, animal communications, breath work, the list goes on. And we're always adding new courses and ways to expand what you know and what you want to learn. So go to denanywhere.com, check out certifications and courses and join us. How do you reconcile? And you talk about this in the book too, and you were talking about it earlier about kind of, you know, the head and the heart. And you were saying how mindfulness is part of these heart practices. And talk a little bit about how you know, I say this all the time in my classes too. It's like, yes, we use our brains way too much and it gets us out of like our heart center. However, we have them for a reason and it really is the delicate dance. You can get them both to do. So talk a little bit about kind of those two coming together. One of my favorite teachings I ever encountered was the teaching, the, the Buddhist teaching of chitta or chitta consciousness. And chitta actually means heart-minded consciousness or mind-heart consciousness. And what was so helpful about that teaching when I first encountered it is that it, it allowed me to understand that from a traditional perspective and a traditional view, especially if you are over in uh, the... the uh, monasteries in the East or in any sort of traditional setting, when we practice mindfulness meditation or our Buddhist meditation, we are always approaching the mind and the heart as the same, as this state in this field of chitta consciousness. And uh, one of my research, I did um, clinical research for, for several years before starting to teach meditation more full-time. And one of my research mentors, Dr. Clifford Saren, 
told me this story several years back and I always remembered it. And then when I encountered the teachings of Chitta, it all kind of clicked together. Uh, he shared that one of his early expeditions over to the um, base monasteries in the, in the Himalayas, where he and his research team were starting to conduct the neuroscience of, of meditation for the first time. I believe this was in the early 90s. And wow. so um, as Western scientists, they went over to the Himalayas. They had all of their brain measuring equipment, their EEGs, like literally strapped to their I love back. this story. You had this in the oh, book yeah. too, right? right? I love this one. Keep going. Right, right. yeah. And they get over to um, one of the monasteries, which is one of the oldest monasteries, I guess, in this in this region. And as as Cliff and the scientists um, tell the story, they were starting to give a EEG demonstration to the monks there. And the monks at this monastery were often ordained into this particular monastery at the age of like nine or seven or very young. And so they'd been monks pretty much their whole lives. And so they're giving this demonstration of what it's like to be measuring brainwaves in front of a group of student monks. And one of the monks raises their hands and they, you know, they, they ask, well, what are you trying to measure? And Francisco uh, Varela, who is the neuroscientist who was giving the, his own brainwaves for the demonstration, he responds, you know, and says, well, we're trying to measure the effects of meditation on the brain. And as that is translated to the group of student monks, as the story goes, there's just like an eruption of like deep, like howling, deep bellied laughter. And, um, the, you know, and, and scientists are like, what, what, you know, what's going on? Why is everyone laughing? And the student monk responds, well, if you want to, you know, if you want to understand the effects meditation has on the brain, then you actually need to put those EEG nodes um, right here. And he was pointing towards the very center of his chest at his heart center in the heart space of mm. the body. And so as Cliff was telling the story, you know, years and years later to me, I could even tell in that moment, just the, the deep understanding as a, one of the world's top meditation neuroscientists, he had that deep understanding, that deep moment of insight, like, okay, from the traditional view, the mind and the heart, heart are not viewed as separate. That is, that is chitta. That is our heart-minded consciousness. And, you know, in a sense, what I love so much about the Brahma Viharas or the four heart qualities of mindfulness meditation is that they are ways for us as modern contemporary meditators to really start to practice with and engage with actively day-to-day -day at this point in time with our chitta consciousness, with bringing the mind and the heart back to that, that place of unification, back to uh, that place of home, you know, really within. And it's hard. It's hard mm -hmm. to do that because I feel like it's so easy. We're not, we're just, when we're raised in this country or in the world, I should say, but I can speak for what I know. When we're, when we're raised, it's, so often you're taught to think, you're just taught to think about it all, logically make sense of it all, protect yourself. 
the heart is usually like the bonus. I feel like it's like, well, if you do all these things, then you get to experience the joy. If you do all these things, then you can experience safety and peace. You know, if you do all these things and secure yourself, then you'll feel. So it's almost like we're just taught from a very young age that the heart is secondary. And it's kind of like the bonus on like the cherry on top versus actually part of the main ingredients. Completely, you know, and in a sense, I can think back to my own upbringing where we were not necessarily, even as a family unit, we weren't necessarily encouraged to show our emotions or our feelings in the moment at all. And all of that, you know, is based from our, our, processing of our daily life experiences, like in the field of the heart and in the emotional field. Um, So I, you know, I completely understand that, that as modern Western people, we are in a sense taught or told to suppress our emotions or, you know, compartmentalize them, not express them fully, especially as, as young children. And in a sense, one of the the first real tangible benefits that I had from starting to work with metta and compassion practices was a um, like just a deep emotional healing Mm -hmm. for, for me. And so that, and I, so I love that you brought, you know, in a sense brought that in is that I was first really able to understand and start to work with my emotions in a more skillful way through loving kindness and compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk about in the book a little bit how you went to this retreat, maybe a three-day retreat, and you'd already been doing the practices. And I guess they they were asking you guys to bring up kind of awareness of whatever it is you wanted to work on. So whether it was like a certain trauma or a pattern and and it was all great. And you even said like everyone seemed like they were in their own space and doing great, but then they asked you to share it with like a partner. So what do you, and you mentioned something earlier in the conversation today of sharing, what do you feel like the process of being vulnerable in that or letting someone see these parts of you? What do you think the relationship to doing that and healing is? I think it's a important part of the process. And I also think it's a personal and unique stepwise process that each of us, in a sense, has to encounter and move through and work with in our own timing and in our own way. Because vulnerability and honesty often begins with our own relationship with ourselves. At least for me and my experience, I found that the more I was committed to being vulnerable or honest with myself, that gave me over time courage and confidence to be more vulnerable and more uh, just more completely authentic with those around me, friends, family members, people I was meeting for the first time, that, you know, way that we kind of separate our personality. Sometimes we're this way with one group of people, we're this Mm -hmm. way when we're alone, we're this way with our family. Um, The part of the healing process, at least for me, is kind of like reclaiming our sense of wholeness and taking a look at all of the the past experiences, the past moments of heartbreak, the trauma, the challenge, the difficulty, or the pieces of our brokenness, and through the heart, 
you know, really like learning to see them and acknowledge them for what they are like, and doing so through the eyes of like compassion, through the eyes of love, like loving up our, our broken pieces as hard and as difficult as that is. And, uh, and that, and when we do that, that in a way is like self vulnerability. And then when we're ready, because I also acknowledge that sometimes it's just not the right time to be 100% like all in, you know, I'm going to tell you everything about what's happened to me. I'm going to tell you all of my, my wounds, my traumas, my stories. Uh, I actually am a huge proponent of like really being in, in connection with your own right timing for sharing those sorts of difficulties that that um, you may have encountered, and so, but first being uh, self vulnerable and self honest helps us be able to do that. And then in that right space in that right container, like I was at that retreat, when you're met with acceptance, when you're met with non judgment, when you're met with unconditional love and compassion. Even when you share something that's so, so secretive and so personal or so like, you know, I've never told anyone this before, um, that that vulnerability is a, a really key ingredient in the healing process and only when you're really ready. Yes, I agree. I think vulnerability, it, it's interesting how you're right. You have to be able to be vulnerable and you have to be ready because if you're not ready, and then that allows you to come at it with sometimes more. It's funny. It's like, which one comes first, the chicken or mm -hmm. the egg? Because it's like knowing if you're vulnerable and then seeing that someone else can accept your, what you, what you qualify as like negative qualities or whatever it is, does that help you then accept yourself? Or is it the op? It's like, which one comes first? Who knows? And I guess maybe for everyone, it cracks differently. Completely. And it may even just be the, the deeper layers of, of cracking or healing. We can practice self-forgiveness. We can practice self-acceptance. We can practice self-kindness and self-compassion. And then a lot of that is put to the test when we do share something that is difficult or painful. And in the way in which it's received, when it is received in a way where we don't feel blamed or shamed when we feel seen and loved and still held for who we are, even in all of our imperfection and our brokenness. To your point, Tal, that I, I, for me and for you know the conversations I've had with, with people over the years, when that experience, when we experience that, that actually allows us to step into a deeper layer of healing as well. So it's really, to your point, it's a two-way, you know, experience. It's a two-way street when it comes to vulnerability, honesty, and then having compassion and unconditional love and acceptance like mirrored back to us at these really pivotal times. And talk about like, if you are doing a regular heart practice, mm -hmm. like talk about kind of the the roller coaster of it too, in the sense of like, I think everyone would assume, okay, in the beginning, it might be really hard, depending where you're at. It could be very hard. Could we feel very tight? It might take you a while to really sit in it. But then let's say you're in it, like you said, 10 years. And so somewhere around year three, four or five, you're feeling really great. You feel like you've cleared some stuff. You're really in that hard practice. You can really feel the love for yourself. But talk about that moments, those moments that even when you're super experienced, how it can become really difficult again. 
Oh, completely. And I actually call these our practice edges. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the reason why, you know, I just identify with that, that term and that phrase so much is because that's what it feels like in my own practice and my own heart and mind when I hit those, those moments where my heart shuts down, my compassion shuts down, my ability to be patient or, or um, forgive or kind shuts down. And I, you know, I love that you brought this in because even if you are 10, 20 years, 30 years into a practice, the practice edges are going to inevitably still come up, inevitably still be there. And, um, and I actually have come to, in a way, almost like revere them and celebrate them. Like the moment that I notice I'm going down the road of judgment, like I'm judging the heck out of something going on. And I, and I have enough awareness now, especially body awareness, where I've become aware of the judgments going on in my mind. I become aware that I'm forming opinions and stories about this person, this entity, this being like, like literally just a new, a neighbor, you know, a new neighbor down the street, whatever. And all of a sudden, I then am able to tune in and just feel the level of like constriction in mm. my body. Like I feel my heart tight. I feel my shoulders all crunched up. And, you know, I start to have this real palpable experience of just this closing down. And so I know I've like bumped into one of my practice edges. I even have this moment. I'm like, whoa, your heart is not open right now. <laughs> Amanda, you are not in compassion. You are not, you know, in in kind understanding, et cetera. And so, you know, when we when we meet those moments of closing down, um, and I, I actually always rely on the the Buddhist teacher, the prolific Buddhist teacher, Pema Chodron. She has such beautiful teachings around this, the moment where we like close down as she calls it, that's where we actually are able to soften and start to lean into that, that moment of closing down. That's where the insight is. That's mm. where the revelation is. That is the practice, as she calls it, the opportunity, the soft spot of closing down allows us to, with our awareness, our willingness, our courage, our messiness, our imperfection, we get to, in a sense, choose another way doesn't mean it always works out doesn't mean we practice compassion on the spot sometimes i'm like you know bumping up against my practice edge around a particular person or somebody or some situation for like days you know and i'm just mm -hmm. I keep hitting it keep hitting it and then you know I, and as as Pema so beautifully says you know it's almost like breathe around that that moment of closing down love that moment of closing down don't judge yourself don't condemn yourself for that, you know, in a sense, like learn to love that moment of closing down. And because that's, you know, that's the way we can really start to make that moment of closing down something workable, something insightful, something growthful, something beautiful, you know, when it's ready. She says that the bodhicitta or the awakened, you know, our awakened heart mind, that awakened consciousness, that awakened heart-minded consciousness that we all have within us, the bodhicitta is like right there in that mm -hmm. moment of closing down. It's so true. I joke, like whenever I, like when I bring awareness around judgment, I'm like, holy shit, am I judgmental? Like when I never thought I was, I was like, maybe a little bit like anybody. I mean, I have opinions, but 
when you, when the awareness opens, it it opens up a whole side of stuff that it's it's a lot usually. Usually, when you start actually looking at yourself clearly, it's a lot, and mm-hmm. it's um. So yeah, so it's interesting. So then you're all of a sudden in your practice edges all the time because all of a sudden you're seeing it. So I like the word practice edges. I think for that phrase, um, it's helpful. But you start seeing it all the time of like, oh god. Oh God. And if anything, I feel like it almost comes up more because it's like you're in the zone of like having to learn it or practice it. It's funny, but it's so true. The practice edges are huge. And I agree. If you can not run away from them and lean into them, they're your best platforms, your best learning platforms. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. And I will say this sometimes, even just taking it back to basic, simple mindfulness practice, when we learn to view that moment of wondering, when we're like focusing our awareness and our attention upon the breath or the body, let's say we're really trying to gain a sense of steadiness and concentration in the present moment. And then all of a sudden we realize like our mind is just ping-ponging around, it's penduluming out. We feel like we've literally just been thinking for five minutes straight instead of meditating or following our breath for five minutes straight. I actually, like I say like, amazing, like good, like let's celebrate that. And sometimes people hear me say that and they're like, what, you know, (laughs) what's going on here? I thought I'm not supposed to be like welcoming these moments in in a meditation practice. I feel like I just am supposed to be following my breath the entire time. And for the first many years of my teaching practice, um, you know, I really took so much like uh, dedication and joy around dismantling that view around um, what our practice should look like. And when we when we have thoughts or when we bump into our practice edges, let's not make that into the bad guy. Let's normalize that. And in a sense, in a sense, I think one of the aspects I love so much about the heart practices, but really, um, you know, Buddhist or mindfulness practice in, in general is that because we become more aware of our own inner workings, because we realize like it can be so difficult to keep our attention in the present moment for more than like a minute sometimes, because we understand like all this judgment that we have or all these ways of being that we have within ourselves. I mean, what I love about these practices of the heart and of mindfulness is that it reminds us of our shared humanity it reminds me that, okay, just like me, you tell, you have judgments too. And just like you have judgments, I have judgments too. <laughs> and, you know, just like I'm, you know, uh, floundering around at times as a human being, these people that I'm seeing flounder around or have like moments of stress around me too, but they're just like me. And uh, I just feel like when we rest in that space of shared humanity through the lens of our practice, it can actually be a beautiful way to start to, yes, we still have the judgments occur, but they really lose like their potency or their hold over us or their power. When we are, are more rooted in our shared humanity, we will still have the judgments or the opinions, but they're like fleeting. They're almost like thoughts at that point. Like, oh, yeah. here it is again. Meh. You know, doesn't matter. I'm back here. So true. And that brings you back to kind of your point of like why these practices are so important right now, because they bring you into the shared humanity if you're living from that heart centered place. Completely, completely. 
But before we finish, I have to ask you, because what I had no clue when you were talking about how you went to like the high school for the kids who basically like fucked off high school. And I just never talk about judgments. I was like, that was surprising to me. You just like meeting you do not come off as the kid who basically like just, so what was going on in your life? Gosh, I know. Um, I, it feels like in some ways I've had like so many different chapters to, you know, my life story as we all have. We've Which all is gone. great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that was what led me to first meditating for the first, for the very first time was going through just like, like deep quintessential teenage angst, like discontent everywhere, not happy, just acting out in all, all of the ways, you know, um, dabbling with, with drugs, not going to class, um, just going just really in that, in, in that space. And, um, my parents finally, in a sense, were just like, we need to get her through, through high school. We need, to, we need to help her complete, you know, this, this chapter of her life. And so we found um, a homeschool in West Virginia, and it was a homeschool that was based in the philosophy of the, of the four winds, the South American philosophy of the four winds. The leader of the school, the principal of that school had spent decades down in South America um, with the, um, the spiritual leaders of, of the indigenous cultures down there. And he learned the wisdom of the four winds. And so in our high school environment, who was it? Do you remember? I cannot remember his name and the school is no longer there either. So it, it's, it closed down um, many, many years ago. So the place I graduated from high school doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> but, uh, and, and yeah, and I can't remember the principal's name. Um, but we were finishing our, I was finishing my last couple credits of like of chemistry and algebra. And at the same time, uh, we were also learning these, the, the wisdom of the four winds and starting our days all circled up, all huddled up in these um, student the four winds meaning like the four directions, like the four. Yes, up. yeah. Thank you. The four directions. Uh, north, no, because I mean that they say four winds, but I just want to make sure we were. I was thinking of the same thing you were referring to. Exactly, um, and yeah, and each of the four winds holds their holds its own symbolism. And if I remember right, north is like your authenticity, or north, north star. East, like is the um, the wind of change and the wind of transformation self is like understanding and welcoming your shadow west. Um, I can't remember what west is right now, but um, we would start our days all huddled up in these student-made, community-made huts in the middle of the Appalachians. And we'd be guided in these visualization meditations to find our own true north or to lean into the wind of the East to understand how to navigate change and transition or to welcome our shadow aspects of ourselves, everything we've been talking about during you know, our, our conversation right now, Tal. And it was in those moments, I, for the first time as this like young, angsty, acting out young person, um, I felt finally at home. And I felt that feeling like I, I realized I'd been like looking for in all the things, all the acting out, all the, you know, the uh, drugs, all of the 
you know, the hours of just like painting. I was like into art at the time, like, you know, just all in on art class. And it was that moment, those first moments in meditation where I actually was just like meeting myself for the first time. I realized that was what I was looking for that, that during that entire chapter of my life. And so in a sense, I always like marvel. I don't know how you feel, but I always marvel at how our life unfolds where the, the things that feel or can seem like just such obstacles or such detours or just total cataclysmic breakdowns in our life, um, you know, they, they tend to lead us to these places that we would never have gotten to if we hadn't gone through them. So, <laughs> so you look back on the school fondly, like how long were you there one year, just kind of finishing up your stuff or three, uh, three months, I think three to five months. Do you have any friends from there still or? Yes, actually. And it was, and it's so wild um, because one of my best friends to, uh, to this day, we didn't meet when we were both at this school in West Virginia, but I had heard, I had heard about her. She had just graduated and had gone off to um, college in Arizona and she had just graduated about a month before I got there. And all of the staff members, all the, even the students who were there when she was still there. And when I got there, they were like, you would absolutely have loved this girl named Lyric, you know, and you two would be best friends. You two would totally hit it off. And so I remember hearing her name so much during those few months. And then as life unfolds, um, I, you know, find myself choosing a school in, in Arizona for my undergraduate studies. And as I came to find out, Lyric <laughs> also had chosen that same exact school. And we met, um, you know, at that time, maybe a year later or so for me after, after graduating from high school in West Virginia. And we met and we have been just best friends and sisters, you know, deep, deep sisters um, ever since. So yes, I absolutely That's still so keep crazy. in touch with her. Yeah. Now, does she work in the meditation space? Did she go that same line as you or? So she's uh, into herbalism. She is into um, a lot of the healing arts and spiritual modalities as well. So we do really mirror in that way. So funny. I mean, it was just so interesting when I was reading that. I'm like, I just never would have guessed that part of you. And then where do you feel like, you know, things you've gone through in your life that if you had these practices, like you wish you had them then? You know, in a sense, I trust so deeply the timing of meditation. Um, I, I always, I always like say to, to people who will say to me, you know, I just, I, I'm not a meter. I can't meditate or try just not thing. And I, you know, I totally acknowledge that I t completely understand how um, difficult it can be to start up a practice in any way or feel comfortable in stillness and in meditation. And at the same time, I also just, I might not always say it in the, in the moment, but I also, I also always hold in my heart space. Like I know deeply that the timing of meditation, when we are ready, meditation is always there for us. And this is how the practice works. It meets us when we are ready. It meets us in the exact moment with the practices or the teachings or that, or the podcast or the, the Dharma talk, 
it just has this beautiful way of always meeting us in our lives, I have found. And so, you know, I think, I think during one of the most difficult times of my life um, in my early 20s, maybe looking back, if I had been able to have a level of like of compassion or a bigger sense, like remembering that shared community or shared humanity, like we were talking about before, that would have been just so helpful at a really difficult time um, at that at that moment. But I also just have this wild faith and confidence and trust that that our understanding of of practice, our receiving of certain teachings or techniques or meditations, they are always on their on their own timeline, and they're always on, in the right time as well. So um, I've always just marveled at how I will bump into the teachings and meet the teachings right at the right time. Mm, well, that's such a beautiful place, actually, to stop. Because I guess what I would say is, if you guys are ready, The Kindness Now is a beautiful book, um, whether you have a practice or are looking to start one. Because even if you have a practice, just to um, focus it in this way, I think is really beautiful and to focus it on the heart center practices. And especially if you don't know them yet, or if you do, and also I feel like the the layering you did with explanation, teaching, and also the self-inquiry, I think is a way to just, for people to get so much out of this, that it does not matter where you fall on the experience level at all. You're going to get something huge out of it. So amazing work. I'm really, really excited to see all of this come from you. And thank you for sharing it with us. I appreciate it. And hopefully you're going to share a personal practice with us as well. Absolutely, Tal. And it's so good to drop in and be here too. So thank you for having me. No, we love you. You're so great. And this was so nice to like catch up and actually have this conversation. Thank you. So stay tuned because she will be back with her personal practice. So I wanted to talk about our memberships. So if you are listening to this, no matter where you are in the world, you can now be a part of our community for $49.99. That's it. You can take class every single day, as much as you want. You can take classes 10 times a day if you'd like. Between our live schedule and on our on-demand library, you will have unlimited access. What's beautiful about this now is make it work for you. Whatever you respond to, however you are growing, you will have the ability to set your own schedule and again, like I said, make it work for you. So join us, become a denizen, $49.99. We can't wait to see you in class. So now Amanda's going to lead us in a personal practice, which is a loving kindness meditation. So beginning to find your way to a comfortable posture and position for your time in meditation. And spending a moment to allow the body in particular to find its way to a place of comfort and ease. Maybe this means rolling the shoulders back. or allowing the neck to stretch side to side.
Making any additional adjustments to feel most comfortable and most at ease. And if you haven't already, now gently closing the eyes. Of course, knowing that it's completely fine to practice with the eyes open as well. We'll first spend the initial few moments in our practice just landing here, just settling into the body. Perhaps you start to sense your feet resting against the floor. Or even feel the weight of the body being held by the seat beneath you. And even encouraging the body to soften. in any way that feels supportive for you. Seeing if the shoulders can drop and fall away from the ears and the earlobes. or even relaxing your facial muscles, particularly the muscles around the eye. And continuing to encourage the whole body to soften, the full body to soften. Almost like a sweet welcoming home to this moment and even inviting yourself to fully be here right now. And if you'd like, you can also become aware of these sensations of breath as it moves throughout the body. Meeting the gentle inflow and the gentle outflow of your breath and breathing.
And even for the next few moments, settling into the practice of taking it one breath at a time. Letting each breath guide you into this moment here even more. And then if you'd like, you can begin to center your attention upon the breath in the heart space. Feeling and sensing the rise and fall of your chest and ribcage. And all the expressions of the breath. The feeling of filling and emptying in the lungs. Sensing each breath nourish the body. And as you continue to explore the breath in the area of the heart, maybe you even feel the rhythmic sensations of the heart. The palpable heartbeat in the chest. the opening and closing of the heart's valves, just all of the sensation of heart. And with your attention anchored in and around the heart space, we'll begin to practice loving kindness towards ourselves. So we'll repeat silently in the mind the following phrases of loving kindness, self-friendliness, and even self-love. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I release anything blocking me from well being. 
And may I allow metta or loving kindness to meet me today or someday soon. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I release anything blocking me from well-being. And may I allow metta to meet me today or someday soon. And spending in the next few moments silently repeating these words or these phrases in the mind. Maybe one word from the phrases speaks to you a little bit more right now. Or maybe one phrase just feels like the perfect welcoming home, the perfect medicine and remedy for this moment. Continuing to repeat any word or phrases in the mind or also forming your own phrase of loving kindness, your own metta mantra with words, intentions, aspirations, and wishes for your own well-being right now, your own unique needs or desires or intentions for healing. Letting any words flow in the mind. And whether it's wishing yourself peace or ease, compassion or insight, or working with one of the phrases or words from before. Repeating this phrase of metta one more time in the mind now. Really taking in the meaning behind the words, even the feeling behind the words.
And if you'd like to bring this practice to a close just for now, you can guide a palm of your hand to the heart space. You can place a palm of your hand over the heart. Just sort of sealing in this practice of loving kindness. Even appreciating all of the well-wishing that you just sent towards yourself. And if you'd like, you can dedicate the goodness, the aspiration, the feeling, and the merit from this practice towards someone else in your life. Or even towards all beings everywhere. And then when you're ready, taking a nice long deep breath in. And then gently releasing this breath out. Letting the palm of your hand float back downwards towards your side. And then when you're ready, gently inviting in some mindful movement into the body. And softly floating open the eye. Thank you so much for your practice right now. And know that you can take this loving kindness, these wishes of well-being out with you into the rest of your day. Ten Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.